Good morning. All right, what book are we studying? Very good. I like how quick. Y'all looked at the bulletin, though, didn't you? Did somebody say Matthew? <laughs> we did that for two years, I think, but uh, we have moved one book reverse, and we are in Malachi. So go ahead and grab your Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 2. So as we dive into this passage this morning, we need to be familiar with the Old Testament in general. And so one thing I love about our church is we're not scared to get a little nerdy. Um, so just the, my, my son made a really good illustration of that last night. We uh, went to my parents' house because my sister's in town. There's a baby shower in the family. That, not a baby shower. Bridal shower. Yeah, big difference, you know, in the, in the family. So anyway, my sister was in town. We went up to my parents' house. We, we come in, and my sister is making some whipped topping icing to go on a cake. And it's like, oh, I mean, it's just beautiful. You know what I'm talking about? You look at, does anybody feel that way when they see icing in a mixing bowl? And she did, she pulled out the mixing thingy. What do you call that? The, the whisk? Well, the, the one that's connected to the, the thing. It's like heart-shaped, spade-shaped. The, the beater, she pulled it out and said, you want this? And I'm like, of course I want that, you know. So I take it, and I start, you know, I'm a grown man, but, you know, whatever. And I'm licking the thing. And then, you know, my son Blaze comes up, and he looks up at that, and I'm like, oh, I can't be that dad. I mean, I wanted to be. I was like, okay, bud, you, you, want, you want to lick this? And he looked up at it, and then he looked at the counter, because we were having burgers for supper, and they had grilled bacon to go on top of the burgers. He looked up at me, looked over at the bacon, looked back up at me, no bacon. That was his response, bacon. So I'm holding this pure sugar treat, but he wants the meat. That's church the square, is it not? We want the meat. Now, we could make that a transition for what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? He couldn't eat the bacon, right? Okay, that'll, that'll matter a lot more towards the end. This was really an elaborate setup, okay? So, that being the case, we need to think a lot about the meat, the nerdy stuff, going into the passage today. So, let's, let's dive in first, and then we're going to have to jump back and work through a lot of Old Testament history as we go. So keep your brain occupied and working through the text this morning. You're going to need it, or I don't think it'll come together quite right in the end. So let's dive in. Malachi chapter 2. Um, just remember Malachi's a prophet. He's presenting different oracles, and basically all of them are accusations from the mouth of God. So they're often in first person. God speaking to his people, accusing them of something. So he's talked about them offering bad offerings, lame offerings. Now they're going to move to the priests in particular. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. All right, well, let's just pause right there. So we've, we've narrowed down to a specific subset of God's people. We've been studying the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. We've been doing this little map thing from Eden to Ur to Israel to Egypt to Israel to Babylon to Israel. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should come to church on Wednesday night. You'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That was the whole history of the Old Testament, just in that progression on a map. But the Old Testament, of course, starts with creation. But really, the Old Testament story, in a sense, starts with a man named, ultimately, Abraham, who God calls and sets apart and makes a covenant promise that I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and through your offspring, all the families of the earth 
are going to be blessed. Of course, that story progresses. The covenant transfers to Isaac and then transfers to Jacob, who was referenced at the beginning of Malachi. And then Jacob's 12 sons make up the 12 what of Israel? The 12 tribes of Israel. So it's important in the Old Testament story to know that there's such a thing as 12 tribes. And so all of the people of Israel could connect themselves to being descendants of one of those 12 sons. Now, if you get into it, technically, there's Joseph is not a tribe. He actually gets two tribes for himself, Ephraim and Manasseh, are really Joseph. And it's two different tribes, but it's really one dude. That's because one of the sons, even though he's a tribe, he doesn't get an inheritance in the land of Israel. He's unique. He's set apart. He's distinct. He gets no land territories. When they divide up the land and divide it among the 12 tribes, he gets nothing. Well, technically, he gets this caveat, but he doesn't get a land portion. And instead, Joseph gets two tribes from his lineage. Anybody know which tribe this is that doesn't get a direct land grant? Levi, exactly. So Levi is one of the better-known tribes in the Old Testament. If I asked you to name all 12 of them, chances are you'd be more likely to name all 12 apostles, um, which most of us probably can't do, um, or maybe better yet, all 10 commandments. I think some of you could do those, but we don't know all 12 tribes of Israel. Very few of us would remember them, but we remember at least three of them being very well known. Of course, Jesus is from what tribe? Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter would come from Judah. The kingly line had to be from Judah. Then ultimately within Judah, from the lineage of David. Then the tribe that Saul, later Paul, the apostle was from. What tribe is that? Benjamin, other well-known tribes. So Judah and Benjamin represent the two tribes in the Old Testament that stayed faithful to the Davidic king. So when the kingdom split, so if you remember your history there, so they're faithful to that tribe. The other most famous tribe then, of course, would be Levi. So why is Levi special? What comes from Levi? The priest, exactly. So sometimes in the Old Testament, priests and Levites are used synonymously. Right? The priest and the Levites are the same thing. Technically, however, they are not because all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Anybody ever get confused by that whole all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares? That bothered me to no end as a child. I was like, what? How could that possibly be? Well, you recognize that within Levi, you have the priests, but not all priests are necessary. I mean, sorry, not all Levites. I'm going to confuse you worse. Not all Levites are priests because... To be a priest, not only did you have to be a Levite, you had to be a descendant of one particular man within Levi. And who was that? Aaron, the descendant of Aaron, which is who to the most famous Old Testament character? Brother of Moses. Very good. So we're doing good on trivia this morning. So brains are working. So when we say priests, we could mean everything in Levi, or we could only mean the the actual priesthood under Aaron. In this passage, we're going to see a little bit of both happen. So when he says, and now, O priests, this command I give to you, it's really a command to the Levites in general, 
even though some of it applies to specifically the priests, the descendants of Aaron in particular. Everybody with me on that? So let's continue going. So, oh, priest. So he singled out one tribe. This isn't for everybody. Um, these Levites, these priests, have a slightly different role in God's people and are subject, therefore, to different judgment. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. I will curse your blessings. If you don't listen to me and give honor to my name, I will curse you and your blessings. So he's talking to these Levites. He says, if you don't honor my name, you get cursing. Now, we've already looked at last week. Honoring God's name was a lot more complicated than just breaking what we would call the third commandment, using God's name in vain. Anything they did that detracted from the glory of God really detracted from his name. So to do a sacrifice in God's name, yet not doing it wholeheartedly, you're taking God's name in vain. If you're a priest and you're administering the sacrifice and you're doing it with a bad attitude, are you breaking God's name? Are you using his name in vain? Yes. Any degree to which you, you, you bring reproach, you do this in any negative sense whatsoever, as a priest, you are bringing reproach on God's name. What's God's threat in this verse? If you don't honor my name, I'm going to what? Curse. God is going to curse you and specifically curse your blessings. Now, what does it mean by the blessings of the priesthood? We could actually think of two distinct things. God had promised to bless the Levites, had promised to bless the priests because they're serving the temple. They're guarding, as the Old Testament word, they're guarding the priesthood at large. They're guarding the tabernacle. They're guarding the Holy of Holies. They're guarding the Ark of the Covenant. They're guarding God's presence, God's relationship with Israel. There was a blessing on them for that. He would take care of them. But then also, and we quote this every time we do the Lord's Supper, from number 623, the Levitical priests would say this blessing over the people, the Lord Bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a beautiful blessing. He's not just cursing the blessing the Levites receive. He's also going to curse the blessing the Levites give. Does that make sense? I'm going to curse both of these. I've already cursed them, actually, God says, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread, <laughs> spread dung on your faces. I didn't make that up. That's in there. God just said, I'm going to take dung. And the idea is this is the dung that came out of the sacrificed animal. I'm going to take that poop and I'm going to smear it in your face. Have you ever smeared poop in someone's face? Have you ever had that done? You didn't have children like I did. <laughs> the idea is that that's a very shameful thing, is it not? It's very presumptuous. God is going to take the dung from the sacrifice and smear it in their faces. What do you think that's literal? No, this is symbolic of God 
cursing his own people. If you don't take my name seriously, I'm going to take the dung and rub it in your face, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So the dung would get taken, that wasn't really part of the holy part of the sacrifice, right? You'd take that and you'd throw that outside the camp and burn it. So what's he going to do with the Levites? He's going to make them part of the dung. Like, really, you're, you're part of the dung here, and I'm going to take that dung, and we're going to put the dung where the dung goes. That's where you belong if you misuse my name. In other words, you don't properly do these sacrifices with a good attitude. Verse 4, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So when he says priests here, you see he's using it synonymous with the covenant with Levi. Now that's actually formal terminology. This is referencing something very specific and precise in the Old Testament, and I want you to see it. So turn over quickly to Numbers, one of your favorite books of the Bible, Numbers chapter 3, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers chapter 3. So I want you to see the basis of God's covenant with the Levites. I want you to see what's going on with this. It's a very interesting um, system of theology for them in the Old Testament. So God's covenant with Levi is more precise than God's, say, covenant with Israel in, in general, the Mosaic covenant. The covenant with Levi is something specific and much more precise. So to make sense of it, though, you have to remember what happened in the plagues against Egypt. How many plagues were there against Egypt? You remember? There's 10. 10 plagues. Most important, we need to remember number 10. What's the 10th plague on Egypt during that time? The final judgment. Death of the firstborn. Every household, no one excluded. Now, there was a way you could be passed over, which is the sim- the Passover idea, is that God passed over households that had sacrificed the lamb. But here, I want you to see what's going on in the theology here. So this is Numbers chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt and consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. God's saying in the Passover, in that situation where he takes the firstborn of Israel, yet allows the first, sorry, he takes the firstborn of Egypt, but allows the firstborn of Israel to be passed over. He says, I purchased every firstborn of every Israelite who ever lives. They're mine. You have to give them to the Lord. But instead of requiring them from you, I'm just going to take one of the tribes myself and say, this tribe belongs to me. It doesn't need an inheritance. It doesn't need a land doesn't mean all this other stuff. This group of people belongs to me. They are my possession to do what I want. They will guard my presence among the people of Israel. They're special. They have a unique role, not only within creation, but within Israel. And then even within them, he's set aside the, the descendants of Aaron to be the priests. So that's God's covenant with Levi. So go back to Malachi. That's the covenant in verse 
5. So my covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. So here's the lingo here. The lingo is as though he's talking to Levi directly. But Levi is long dead by the time this covenant establishes, so it's really a corporate lingo that he's using. So my covenant was with that guy. Really, he means that people. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So interesting, verse 6, true instruction, true instruction was, sorry, true instruction was in his mouth, no wrong found on his lips. So if you're just going to infer from that passage, what's another role the Levites and priests were supposed to fill in ancient Israel? Not just offer the sacrifices, but do what? Teach the people. Instruct the people. In fact, they're directly commanded to do so. We don't want to turn there, but in Leviticus chapter 10, around verse 11 and 12, they're specifically told, when these people come, you know, you will be the one to instruct them in the law of Moses. That's their role in Israel. So not only are they offering sacrifices, not only are they living by example and being designated as holy by God from the outside, but also when people show up, their role was to teach them and to instruct them. And consequently, the way that ends, and he turned many from iniquity. So what are these priests doing? They're saving souls, right? That's how we could word that. They're encouraging people and exhorting people to return to the Lord, to honor Him, to give Him the honor due His name. So if we're going to summarize these, let's just look real quick in the outline. We'll go through these quickly, and then we're going to work out the rest of the passage. So what should the priest of God be? Number one, in covenant with God, right? These priests, their whole concept is God has singled them out and entered into a unique relationship with them that's different and more specific, more exclusive than everyone else. They're in special covenant relationship with God. That's what a priest ought to be. Second, the priest should be sound in doctrine. They have to know the law of Moses. They have to know how it applies to be able to share it with everyone else. Third, they needed to be faithful in life. They're walking in the peace. They're walking in the way of the covenant. They need to be actually practicing the things they're talking about. They need to be honoring the Lord's name, not just in their external form, but even in their hearts. After all, if we summarize the Old Testament law down to the most greatest of all commandments, what is that commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the most important commandment. So what should a priest look like to the people? Look like someone who loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then fourth, these priests should be inclined toward redemption. And what do they do all day long? What is their role with God's people? It's to offer the sacrifice. They're the intercessors. They're the go-between, the mediators, offering sacrifice on behalf 
of the people. They're in the business of sin being forgiven. So what do you think their attitude was towards Israel at large? Repent. Repent. Come home. Like the song, the Father's arms are open. Come. Come to the altar. That's literally, that's perfect timing actually. That, that's literally their message. Guys, come to the altar. Come receive forgiveness. Now, they didn't have the through the blood of Jesus Christ part. That comes later. But that's what they're saying. Come to the altar. They're inclined toward redemption. But do you think this is what they're doing? In Malachi's day, the come back from the Babylonian exile, they've rebuilt this pathetic little temple that no one's real excited about. And their sacrifices are usually they're blind and lame and you know genetically messed up, whatever's going on. The, the sheep that they don't want to keep in the bloodline, those are the ones we're not going to let them reproduce. So let's give those to God since we didn't want them anyway. That's what's going on. What do you think the priests are doing? Are they doing these four things? The answer is no. Let's look at verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord. And so I make you despised and abased before the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So really, you could go through and connect all four of those points. They're breaking every single one. They're not walking in the way. That's they're not faithful in life. They've literally broken the covenant by their instruction. They are leading people astray, so they're not sound in doctrine. And then they're showing partiality. So they're only wanting to hang out with the folks. You know, how do the Levites get their income? You know, through the sacrificial system. So do you want the poor guy to come and make sacrifices and waste your time? Or do you want the wealthy people to come and make sacrifices? You see what they're doing? There's no redemption in their hearts. There's what in their hearts? Greed. They're breaking all four of these commandments. In fact, there's a whole narrative. Nehemiah ends same time period as Malachi's writing in. The whole chapter of Nehemiah 13 is, Here's all the ways the priests, especially the high priests, are destroying God's people. For one, they're marrying people of foreign religions. And then they even directly reference Solomon. What's Solomon known for? First, being wise. Second, marrying a bunch of women who worshiped other gods. And third, ultimately allowing that worship of other gods and their own people. The Levites are doing the exact same thing. They are not fulfilling their purpose. So as we move to the New Testament, right, because we can eat the bacon, we need to interpret this passage from a New Testament lens. So we don't have, formally speaking, priests at a tabernacle offering sacrifices. Well, most of us, I think, would readily jump forward and say, well, this is the elders of the church. These are the pastors. These are the shepherds. And obviously, they need to be in covenant with God. They need to be sound in doctrine because they're the ones teaching it. They need to be faithful in life and obviously inclined toward redemption. And sure, but that's not how the New Testament applies the priesthood, is it? Do you know? Who are the priests in the New Testament? All believers. I'm a believer, so I'm a priest in the New Testament. But any of you that are believers in the New Testament fall into the same category. I want you to see it in 1 Peter. Go ahead and turn there real quick. 
First Peter. We'll just pick up in verse 1 and quickly walk through. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Of course, you could just change the illustration and say long for pure greasy bacon, right? Have that. I want that. I don't want the icing. I don't want the sweet stuff. I don't want dessert. I want the meat. That's what we need to be if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tasted something good and you're faced with something mediocre and something good, which one are you going to pick? You're going to pick the good one, right? If you've tasted that the Lord is good, if you know how good He really is, faced between options of choosing the world or choosing God, you would choose Him that is good. And as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This is us. We're the priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Where's that lingo come from? This is Levi. You are mine. I own you. You are my people among all people that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the Old Testament, the image of the priesthood was the firstborn saved during the Passover. The imagery has changed in the New Testament. That's not the basis of our priesthood. We don't look back to the Passover to see our priesthood, to see how we were purchased. Instead, we look to the final Passover lamb. We look to the Son of God himself, sacrificed on the cross, the blood of the spotless lamb, the one who once for all entered into the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the true one in heaven, offering himself as an eternal act of redemption. That is the basis of our priesthood. And we respond to that. God says, I bought you. You are mine. You will be my priest. I own you. I'm not giving you an inheritance among the nations. I own you. You are mine. That's why we are called sojourners and exiles. We belong to God and his kingdom. Though it's coming, it's not in its fullness. We are not of the world. We are set apart to be God's priests. So guys, the description really ought to be of us. First and foremost, that we are in covenant with God. God's relationship with us is insane if you think about it. That the transcendent God of the universe enters into covenant relationship with people, human beings, where he promises to do a work and he gives us a role. It's a beautiful thing. We ought to be sound in this doctrine. You need to know the gospel well enough to share it. You need to know the scriptures well enough to taste it and see that it is good. We need to know the gospel well enough to be moved by it. When you truly see the glory of the gospel, it stirs you. It changes you. This should describe all of us, not just pastors and elders and these super religious folks. This is God's people. Baseline. We're sound in doctrine. We're in covenant with God. We are faithful 
in life. That's how we're set apart in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you could pinpoint the Jews because of what they didn't do on Saturday, work. You could pinpoint the Jews because they did not eat pork. You could pinpoint the Jews because they didn't shave the corners of their beards. They did a lot of visual things that made them unique and distinct among all of the world. Yet in the New Testament, we, in the same way, are called to be distinct and to look different from the world. But it's none of those external things, is it? It's in the way we relate to the world. It's in our own holiness. Those things don't save us. They demonstrate to the world what God is and who He is and what He is like. And we live differently. We are defined by our love, first for one another, but even for the sinners. We are different than the world. This is what we as the priests of God are to be to the world. They see us. And like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works. But then what? So that your Father who's in heaven gets the glory. That's what it means to be a priest. And final, if we're going to be the priests of God, we need to be inclined toward redemption. We don't stand here haughty and say, oh, look at us. Aren't we so special? God saved me and he didn't save you. Ha, ha, ha. That sounds like some of the parables of Jesus, where that guy ends up getting cast into the outer darkness. Because those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb don't walk out saying, man, you owe me. They walk out saying, man, I've been forgiven the greatest debt that there ever was. And I will love you and preach to you and share with you and provoke you and stir you and do anything I can to make sure God gets his glory through you through your change, through your repentance, through your ultimate glorification through the blood of Christ. I want to see that in you. I'm not talking about pastors here. I'm talking about every saint that is on the earth today is called to be this priest before the Lord. So I'm not trying to motivate you to action by guilt. I want to motivate you to action by glory. Taste and see the Lord is good. And out of all the options before you, if you truly taste that this is good, that this is better, that being a priest of God is the greatest option on the table, it's a lot easier to choose that option. So see Christ exalted and come to the altar and taste and see that the Lord is good.